Welcome to the Harvest Center for International Developments Road to Gem 23 Climate and Development Podcast. My name is Yang Liang. I'm a graduate student at Harvard University and a CID student ambassador. CID's Road to Gem 23 series precedes and helps land CID's global empowerment meeting, Growing in a Green World on May 10th and the 11th. At CID, we work across a global network of researchers and practitioners to build, convene, and deploy talent to address the world's most pressing challenges. On our road to GEM23, we strive to elevate and learn from voices from the countries on the front lines of climate crisis, and we feature learning from leading researchers and practitioners working to combat climate change. This week, we're joined by Michael Oppenheimer, who is the director of the Center for Policy Research on Energy and the Environment at the Princeton University School of Public and International Affairs. He's a longtime participant in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. He has played a leading role in shaping the U.S. Clean Air Act acid rain provisions and the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change's Development. Professor Oppenheimer, thank you for talking with me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. As the impact of climate change on the global economy and environment and continues to grow, policymakers must find a balance that can meet the economic needs of their constituents while also addressing climate change. So how do you think policymakers should find this balance? If you look at what's necessary from the point of view of either reducing emissions of the greenhouse gases that cause the problem or adapting to the fact that some climate change has already occurred and more is inevitable, you see that in order to any any uh, set of proposals which pretend to solve the problem in any fashion have to be transformative. That is, they cannot be incremental changes on the way we do business. The policymakers have to be looking forward a long way to a degree they are not used to to solve this problem. They have to be looking forward many decades to be able to adequately plan and implement defenses and changes in behavior that will help us protect ourselves from the inevitable impacts of climate change. And so when you look at it that way, you understand that from a policy point of view, the necessity now is to develop policies which incorporate uh, the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions and the transforming of the economy to basically what's largely a renewable energy economy over the core, uh, rapidly in historical terms over the course of a few decades to get on pathways that give us a soft landing in the fight against climate change rather than a crash landing. And it's the same thing on the adaptation side. You can't just do little add-ons when you're gonna experience heat waves of the sort that in particular locations have never been experienced before, or where you're worried about flood levels at the coast that previously occurred maybe once every three or 400 years as occurred for instance, in the New York, New Jersey area when Hurricane Sandy came by. Um, and instead, those kinds of flood levels are going to return first every 100 years, then every 50 years, and then every 20 years, and then maybe every year. In other words, all extreme events or most extreme events will be pushed forward in terms of their frequency. They will occur more frequently than, than they did historically, and that process will accelerate over time. 
And so if you live in a world like that, adaptation also has to be a transformative affair. It means building buildings in ways we did not in the past. It means developing infrastructure systems like sewage and water delivery for cities in a way we didn't do in, a, in the past. And it means most of all incorporating the goals of greater equity in society in a way that we never thought about in the past. Because if you don't, larger and larger segments of society are gonna be left out in, instead of left out in the cold, left out in the heat. So that's why you have to talk about economic development and protection and reduction of climate change for both developed and developing countries, the global North and the global South together. Yeah, that makes sense. And it also brings up another question. So how can we address the political barriers that often prevent effective climate change adaptation policies from being implemented? <laughs> wow, now that's a big question. One thing I can say is that with politics as usual, it's probably not gonna work very well. And we're probably all well short of those goals. And, and that's because the way you do things in society is subject. It, and here I'm talking a very American point of view, but what I'm saying about the United States is at various times also true of other countries. We, we, we have to somehow get the squabbling differences of opinion are inevitable in open societies in particular, where there are different interest groups which benefit or lose depending on what actions you're gonna take in the climate change context. We have to get much better at finding ways to have solutions which minimize opposition and maximize uh, beneficiaries essentially. And because there's an old principle that problems that of interest and concern to the average person, but at a little greater only than superficial level, that even if everybody is in favor of doing something, almost everybody, if there's a small but very dedicated group of interests that really their, their survival economically depends on stopping change from happening, especially if it's transformative change, then it's just all too easy for the smaller group to stop the change, whether that means stopping initiatives to decarbonize the economy, whether it means stopping building a surge barrier to protect a, a large population because you, your group happens to lie outside the planned surge barrier, it means frequently going outside normal politics and engaging in the kind of political behavior which we've seen all too often recently, which verges on or becomes violent sometimes. So we have to get back to a mode of operation that gives political leaders the confidence that if they're gonna spend the energy, if they're gonna spend the political capital on long-term plans, which are inevitably expensive, none of this is gonna be for free and none of it is cheap, but it's transformative. And that means in the long term, your economy is better off. But if you're gonna get there, you really have to do business differently in the political world. Then we see little hints of that happening in some places. I think that the way that the Biden administration managed to essentially turn the COVID opportunity into a, the COVID, COVID disaster, into an opportunity to invest in the beginnings of transformations across the board on climate change. It shows you what can be done with politics when 
it's not viewed as a as a a game where somebody wins and somebody loses, and where that's you know that's got to be balanced, a zero sum game. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can do better than that. And although I can't give you a particular prescription for how to do better than that, if we I can tell you if we don't do better than that, we're all sunk. Dig deeper into this issue. How can we encourage greater transparency and accountability in climate change adaptation efforts? Well, first of all, you have to get people. You can produce all the information in the world, but if people aren't interested in taking it up, you've kind of wasted your time. First of all, uh, I'm a scientist, originally a physical scientist. I spent my whole professional life in the scientific community. I can tell you, scientists are not very good at communicating information about what their findings are, and not very good usually at shaping those findings into something that people not only might be intellectually interested in, but get the point that in order to plan effectively for their lives and creating good lives for them and their children, their grandchildren in a world where the climate is changing, that there are things they have to be doing now, both personally and politically to change the situation. Scientists are not, you know, they didn't grow up being good communicators in general. And so one thing that, you know, my community has to do is learn how to talk to people in the vernacular and be able to translate their findings, their scientific findings into something that's meaningful for people. So if I talk about flooding, Mm -hmm. for instance, coastal flooding or flooding due to very intense rainstorms, which are the kinds of changes that have already started and that are attributable to climate change, You've got to talk about, well, why should people care about that? And the way to talk about it is to reach into some experience. And not everybody's had the same experience. So some experience that some significant chunk of your audience has had and talk about, okay, that was bad. It took 10 years, 15 years for you and others to recover for it with, from it, which is basically what happens after, say, a big hurricane. That hurricane, which, you know, might have, come every hundred years previously in terms of the surge at the coast that it caused and all the flooding or the amount of rain it caused like Hurricane Harvey in 2017 in Houston and all the flooding, you know, that hurricane is now, that sort of hurricane is gonna come not once every century, not once every 50 years, but once every 10 years, five years, two years. And then maybe that level of flooding will occur once every year or more often. Those are the kinds of changes that we're getting. That's the kind of acceleration. And you say, well, what are you going to do if the the flood that used to knock out out your normal livelihood for for a decade and only came every once a century, now comes every year. You're never going to recover. So you have to plan for that. You have to plan and you have to support policies to avoid that. If the future is still in our hands and we can reduce the greenhouse gases to slow the changes, eventually stabilize the atmosphere and get to the point where, you know, the hundred year flood won't occur every year. Maybe we can't slow it down until the hundred year flood occurs every 75 or 50 years, but that's a hell of a lot better than if the hundred year flood is in your backyard every year. So those are the kinds of ways you have to talk to people. How does it affect them? People are, they've got a lot to worry about. The climate change problem is rather abstract until it starts hitting home. 
you got to talk about how it's going to hit home and how it's going to hit home soon if it hasn't already. I see your point. Can you also discuss some about the legal challenges that arise in the context of climate change adaptation? There, there are legal obstacles, and it this varies by country. In some countries, there's a relatively, relatively uniform or unitary governmental structure, where if the central or national government decides something has to move forward in the way of actions to protect people against climate change, for instance building new irrigation systems in some areas, bigger dams, uh, coast protecting the coasts, but doesn't all have to be concrete and steel. It can be what we call natural defenses, uh, for instance, ending the destruction of mangroves in the tropical regions. That's an ambition suggest ambitious suggestion, but it would help. Th those kinds of things, if they are planned and implemented in a top-down fashion in countries where say the provincial or state or regional governments, you know, basically go along with what the central government wants. And there aren't many countries where that's absolutely the case. It may be fairly straightforward, but if you have a governance system, like a lot of the Western democracies have, where there's, and particularly the extreme case of it is the federal system of the sort we have in the US or Switzerland, or to some extent in Australia, where, central control over finance might be the case because that's where most of the tax revenue is raised, but implementation is not in the hands of the central government, then there's an obstacle because you've got the responsibility for implementing change at the bottom, essentially, but the money is at the top. And if you have disagreements about what should be done, then either the money doesn't flow or if it flows, the government at the local level doesn't want to spend it the way that the central government wants it spent, and then it doesn't flow. And so those kind of structural failures in political systems really need to be addressed. You can't deal with the climate change problem with patchwork adjustments on current structures. We're going to need new governance structures. That doesn't mean ripping apart the whole system and recreating it. It does mean reducing the power of some existing institutions, which are proven to be less effective than they need to be at climate adaptation and constructing new institutional re relationships in their place. For instance, you know, I don't mind being critical of my own country, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, which is responsible not just for emergency management, for, but for a lot of adaptation programs, has never put many resources toward adaptation. It's all been clean up afterwards. Part of this is a defect in US law. The problem is something called the Stafford Act, which says the federal government has to come in after disaster and spend a lot of money on local cleanup. But you know, what kind of incentives does that give local governments if there's no money to build resilience in advance and to adapt, essentially? And the answer is local governments might just say, all right, things are going to come our way after disaster, we can't do much before disaster without paying for it ourselves. We'll just wait. I mean, even the best intended local government will feel a weight in the direction of not running ahead and, and thinking ahead and, and, and spending their own money on adaptation. So what do you do in that situation? Well, you probably build a new, change the laws, that's doable. 
but build a new institution that's specifically about adaptation. Adaptation is an issue for every ministry. It should be. Every ministry, every department in the U.S. government or governments that have departments, it, it, it penetrates all across. So you need some sort of centralized view on how to do adaptation, just like you need some centralized fund which provides regular support for state, local, provincial governments that want to move ahead at, on adaptation. But right now, don't do anything until after the disaster. You don't want to wait to get to a disaster. Mm -hmm. There have been estimates that every dollar spent ahead of time saves $6 in terms of cleanup costs. At least that's a U.S. number. So it seems totally counterproductive to both protecting people and having an efficient economy as you move into this new world to be wasting money by not doing things in advance, which saves ex post spending. Mm -hmm. the, the, you know, the bottom line is there are a lot of, of structures in our government which get in the way of, of, make, of planning adequately, making sensible decisions and then implementing them. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, because of biases that are built into our governments, because of inequities, a lot of the things that need to be done to protect people don't get to the populations that need to be protected. There's a big literature developing now on inequities, at least again, I'm most familiar, familiar with my own country, inequities in the funding of programs to move people out of the way, to help with retreat. There are inequities in the way that protection against ex excess or excessive temperatures, extreme temperatures is provided in the United States. This, if you can't afford air conditioning, there's supposed to be urban cooling centers where you can go to. But the fact is they're located in places which are inaccessible for poor people a lot of the time and everybody else has air conditioning. Mm -hmm. It's that kind of thing which has to be identified and wrung out of the system as quickly as possible. Otherwise, people who can't afford to protect themselves are going to just be left further and further behind because as damage accrues, they have fewer and fewer resources to do what you're asking them to do. That makes sense. The success of climate change adaptation policies and strategies really requires a comprehensive consideration of multiple factors. And also among these are very important factors to assess the ability of policy and also strategies to reduce the impact of losses caused by climate change on society and the environment. So in your opinion, how should we measure this ability to reduce impact and losses? Well, you know, again, I think we take a look at what we're doing now that's ineffective. And every country has something they do well and something they do poorly. For instance, in Bangladesh, over the last 20 years, they've constructed an early warning capability, and it's based on the fact that globally forecasts are much more accurate, so they can predict a few days in advance when a tropical cyclone is going to strike on the Bay of Bengal coast, and they built concrete bunkers for people to actually go to. It's one thing to give people warning, but they have, if they have nowhere to go to hide, from the, the cyclone doesn't do any good. But if you do the two things in tandem, you can save a lot of lives. So that there was a, a famous cyclone which struck Bangladesh in 1970, which killed 
The numbers are probably totally inaccurate, but something on the order of a half a million people. A half a million people in one storm. There have been storms since then because they happen every year repeatedly. In the last several years, last decade or so, Bangladesh implemented this system of protecting people with the bunkers and with the early warning systems. And what you see are still death rates, which are too high for that kind of storm. But there are a few thousand instead of a few hundred thousand. That's a massive saving of human lives. And in the neighboring country of Myanmar, which gets the same sort of cyclones and is poorly governed, the death rates have stayed up in the, in the many tens of thousands. You, you have to look at each individual country, look at where the weakness is, and then figure out, this is you know, my recommendation to people responsible for governance, and then figure out how to attack that particular problem. So in a country with, with poor governance, it's going to be very hard to change things. In countries that have moderately okay governance, as Bangladesh had over most of the last 20 years, there are things that can be done. In a country like the United States, say, or the EU, where you think governance is probably as good as it gets, yet they still do not manage disasters well. Uh, in the summer of 2021, we saw these terrible floods in northern Germany because there were intense rains. It's the kind of change that climate change causes. And they weren't ready for it, even though they know that they've got towns which are susceptible to flooding, that are on small rivers and, and narrow creeks that, that where the water rises when there's a heavy rainstorm. They know they're old and the drainage systems are no good. They know that they were built, the housing is built too close to where the water comes from. All of that, and yet nothing gets done until after a disaster. Now, just maybe when they rebuild, they'll rebuild better, but they have to be looking forward to the next big flood, which will be even bigger probably at some point because the rainstorms are getting heavy. Same thing in the US, it's the same thing in the UK. Flood risk in particular is handled very badly. And they have to look for where are the flaws, not just in the physical system, but the governance system. All about, a lot of it is about institutional failure. Thanks for sharing this. And also some companies need to consider social and also environmental factors rather than just pursuing short-term profits. Governments can encourage companies to take action on sustainability and climate change adaptations through policies and regulations. So what policies do you think the government should adopt to encourage business to take sustainable and climate change adaptation measures? What measures should companies take themselves to promote sustainability and also like climate change adaptation? I think we need to be realistic about companies. They exist to make profit if they're for-profit companies. And we should realize that that means we shouldn't expect them to be angels. On the other hand, the fact that they're there to make profit means that there's a, a leverage point. And we should insist, number one, full disclosure of where their investments that are either good because they are protective or involve transformation, help the transformation to other energy sources, to a decarbonization, and where their investments are getting in the way of protecting people and reinforcing the carbon economy. And so mm -hmm. that should be public information. And mm -hmm. governments are thinking about moving in that direction. I think it could be a powerful incentive. The government has to use its very substantial purchasing power to show the direction it wants to move. If the governments want to, as we do in the US, mm -hmm. electrify 
the transportation system, the motor vehicle fleet, if they want that electricity to come from low carbon or no carbon electricity, well, then they, the government should be out buying the vehicles first. And, you know, they, they say, uh, you know, it, it, what happens usually it reduces to the budget of some department that would rather spend the money on something else. But across the board, that should be a mandate as it has been to do other changes in the way uh, the departments do their, what their motor vehicles look like. We should do it. We should make that happen. And that's an incentive to firms to start speeding up the supply of the clean vehicles, which by the way, the firms want to do because they're in competition with other manufacturers in other countries like China. Mm-hmm. And so far they've fallen behind. So, mm-hmm. hey, let's give them a hand in stepping up, you know, creating the domestic market for their vehicles, even if they might not be doing uh, operating competitively in some of the foreign markets. So those are the kind of measures. Governments spend a huge amount of money. They ought to use that as leverage on the private sector. That makes sense. How can we better engage the public in the conversation about climate change adaptation? The public is getting more and more engaged on the whole issue of climate change. Adaptation is the hardest thing maybe to get them engaged on because while emissions reduction is something they think of as something that gets done somewhere at some power plant or the automobile industry and the oil companies, you know, it's hard to get people to make the right purchasing decisions. Although more and more they they are making purchasing decisions which have created a market for, say, electric vehicles, although it's not clear the reason they But, you know, on adaptation, it's harder because you actually expect people to make some decisions which are privatized. That is, it's their responsibility. It's the responsibility of every household. Like, do you have insurance against floods? Mm-hmm. A lot of people, you would think, they, they know they live in floodable terrain, don't have flood insurance. And as a result, when they, you know, if, if they, there happens to be a bad event which causes them to have significant losses, they either don't get reimbursed and it's a big economic loss, or the government makes special exceptions. And all of a sudden, it's a government gets stuck spending a lot of money. In other words, you and me. <laughs> so, okay, how do you, you need incentives to get people to take an action like that? You need incentives to have people take actions like making sure their roof is in good condition or taking action like that they have what are called hurricane clips to keep their roof from flying off in a heavy wind. All mm-hmm. these things, there's, there's a million of them, can be encouraged by building codes, for instance, mm-hmm. which are very weak in some places. Mm-hmm. But they can also be encouraged by intelligent an intelligent insurance system, which not only mandates insurance and, and enforces the mandate, which is not true a lot in the United States, mm-hmm. But at the same time, provides incentives for people who can't afford insurance, mm-hmm. gives them vouchers, helps them join the system, mm-hmm. or insu- or incentives for people who take action, like installing those hurricane clips so their roof won't fall off, or making sure their roof isn't already leaking, and so that they you know can get reimbursed by lower insurance rates if they take actions which are preventative and therefore save them hardship and save the society money. Mm-hmm. And those that 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 complexity mm-hmm. of developing such a system is something the governments 
not just my government, but other governments haven't been willing to really carry out fully. And you need, so you have to realize people are not going to take enough action on their own. They need incentives to take the action. It's a wise thing to do because, again, it saves a society as a whole. Month. That's really important. And as we know, the influence of climate change on developing countries will be very severe. So these countries are often more vulnerable than developed countries and lack the funds and technology to cope with climate change. So in your opinion, what aspect of these countries do you think will be affected by climate change? People, developing countries, you know, they're, they're affected by this, in some ways, the same thing that the, uh, that the global north is affected by. It's extreme heat, which, you know, in, 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 in the U.S., we complain about heat waves, and sometimes they've killed hundreds of people, up to a thousand. Uh, but in, you know, every, every year in countries like India like, and Pakistan, several thousand people are dying fairly routinely of extreme heat. And in countries like Germany, as I said before, flooding has caused immense and costly damage. But in Pakistan, we just had a flood that shut down most of the country for weeks. They, countries that are already poor do not have the resources to deal with climate change. And they didn't cause the problem. That's why the discussion at the most recent climate negotiation sessions at Glasgow and Sharm el-Sheikh was so important because they brought the issue of what's called loss and damage to the fore. And they start to establish the principle that although the developed countries in the North was putting money into adaptation funding, it was minimal. And they need to think about the scope of this problem as very big. And that goes not just for the US and EU and Australia, the OECD countries, it goes for China too, a country which is upper middle income country, let's call it. They have capital resources, which far surpass that of many other smaller, poorer countries. They need to get into the aid game which they already are in on funding power plant construction, by the way, which has not always been helpful in decarbonization. I hope I see them wielding some of their capital in the, in the fight to that these countries are in to defend themselves against the effects of climate change. Because in some cases, it's really a life and death fight. Right, really great points. Um, to summarize our discussion, so can you share your perspective on the key factors that facilitate better cooperation and coordination among different countries in addressing climate change adaptation? Well, I think that all countries a, have to realize it's a problem we all share. No country is going to get away free of impacts. We're all suffering some damaging impacts already. Um, that there is, in my view, a, a moral burden that the countries that have loaded the atmosphere with carbon dioxide already have a disproportional obligation to help fund the not just repair of damage of bad events that probably wouldn't have happened without climate change, but the preparation to avoid damage at that scale in the future, which is adaptation. And I don't think the conversation should get stuck on the question of whether it's we're going to call it compensation or right or right, you know retribution or, or reparations or anything like that. That's a semantic argument, which is a waste of time. We should realize there's a need 
that the world would be better off if we if these if some of the countries that could sink due to climate change don't sink literally and that it's not just a moral obligation it's also better for the richer countries if they help those countries make the transition to a world where climate change is no longer a significant threat it's not going to be soon that we get there but at least we have to start out on the path in that direction thank you again to professor oppenheimer for taking the time to talk with me today uh, you can learn more about the CID's research, upcoming events, and how to join the GEM23 virtually at cid.harvard.edu. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back soon.